last night Fiona went to a work Christmas party, so I got to watch my choice of Netflix, and uh, I started watching a new show uh, called Wednesday. Any of you been watching Wednesday? Uh, Wednesday is the name of one of the girls in the Adams family. Remember the spooky kind of family? And uh, Wednesday Adams is a, a little bit of a nightmare, and that's a good thing for her. She's very proud of that. Uh, she's been thrown out of school after school. Um, our query for doing very, very nasty things to people, um, maybe even taking their lives. And her parents, uh, Gomez and Tisha Adams, want her to go to boarding school. So they take her to this school called Nevermore. And uh, the series begins with her entering into this school called Nevermore. And uh, it's interesting that Nevermore is a very spooky looking place. Uh, there is a local town nearby called Jericho where there is uh, a pilgrim world. So if you imagine people uh, dressed in those pilgrim costumes uh, who came over from England uh, hundreds of years before to America, then you've got, I think, this series being set up uh, to be something of a divide between the pilgrim town Jericho and this Nevermore place where uh, it kind of has the outcasts at Nevermore. Um, werewolves are there. Uh, vampires are there, um, sirens are there, and various other kind of outcast forms of uh, teenager go into this school. And the, the thing that I'd like you to think about is that many people, when they think about church, probably have a nevermore attitude towards church. Uh, they've never been into a church building uh, they look at these big gothic structures and they've got no idea what kind of mysterious things take place there. They probably feel it's a, a little bit like a kind of religious version of the Adams family that are there. Uh, they look at the architecture, maybe the stained glass windows. They see priests going in who are dressed in strange clothing, uh, long robes, maybe dog collars, pointy hats all sorts of things, and they think nothing could be further from my experience. Uh, or maybe they did go once. Maybe they went into a church building and, and they saw some candles and they saw some wonderful things written on the wall. There seemed to be a plaque to just about everybody and there were saints with halos on the windows. Uh, there were all kinds of people doing things. There were strange smells. Uh, there were people kneeling, people genuflecting. They were using language that never gets used anywhere else. You see, it can be quite a foreign experience for somebody who has no concept of the Christian faith, no understanding of church, to anticipate what might go on if they were to darken the door of a church. Um, I, I can tell you that I've never been inside, nor do I have a great desire to, by the way, a, a, a Masonic temple. Uh, maybe you have that same kind of eerie thought as to what might be like to go in and have this secret handshake and this secret society and doing all these things. Well, many people, I think, believe that Christianity, that church, is so out of touch because it's just different. It's just foreign. It's so unusual. Now, that's not a new thing, by the way. It's not that you go back to the 1950s and everybody just understood church and nobody was freaked out by it. You go way back to the first century 
and the society around about were completely freaked out by Christians. These were some of the rumours that were going around about Christians in churches. They're cannibals. Why would they call them cannibals? Because they spoke about eating and drinking the body and the blood of Christ. They're into incest because they're marrying their sisters and their brothers in Christ. Well, they're atheists because they don't believe in all of the different Roman or Greek gods and they do not worship the emperor as the supreme being. So there's a misunderstanding then, there's a misunderstanding now and I think that contributes to the church's credibility crisis. We could add layer upon layer to this as well. There are many who find the whole concept of church to be obnoxious because they only see the church as the moral police. That is what we're on about, they presume, is imposing our laws, our rules, our regulations upon others who don't want it and don't need it. We take our, our morals and we say, you should live this way. You should dress this way, for example. Christians and churches over the years have made a fuss about whether you wear a, a dress that is above or below the knee, whether you wear a particular type of clothing in particular places. There's all kinds of things that are said about music. When rock and roll music came out, it must be of the devil to have rhythms that are like that. Uh, you might think that, uh, that people would see Christianity as just an acceptable part of the culture, but they don't. They see it as a, a, a morality that they don't want to have anything to do with. And again, it's not just a new thing. You go back to the 50s and 60s and Christians are saying, well, you shouldn't go dancing. Uh, they're saying you, shouldn't take sun you, you should always take Sundays off and shops shouldn't be open on Sundays. You shouldn't drink alcohol or you shouldn't uh, uh, eat certain kinds of foods. And these things are still around and they're part of people's kind of perception that churches are a little bit weird and I don't want to have anything much to do with them. And then, of course, there's the interference that Christians are seen to have in a secular society. Uh, when it comes to politics, Christians lobbying and pushing their point of view, whether it's the, the, um, the, the same-sex marriage debate or whether it's uh, laws about abortion or euthanasia or whether it's a campaign to reduce the number of poker machines that are out there. There are all kinds of moral issues that immediately marginalise Christians from those around about us. But I think probably the church's deepest credibility crisis uh, in recent times that we confront when we talk about things with those around us is the charge that is made that the church is full of hypocrites. Now, a friend of mine has always disputed that. He said, I don't know a church that is full. There's always room for more hypocrites to come along. But the reality is there is hypocrisy. And there's been very loud and public hypocrisy. Um, the Royal Commission into Institutional uh, Child Abuse brought a, brought a number of findings which were absolutely horrific as to what had happened in certain denominations, in certain churches, the cover-ups by bishops and church leaders and so on. There is a huge problem. Just asking someone to contemplate coming to church 
in some people's minds, it's why would I go to a place that has a reputation for abusing children? The idea of sending your kids along to a program. Can I trust that program? And there's huge issues to overcome in some parts of society. I was down in Newcastle during the week and um, the Anglican Diocese of Newcastle was singled out uh, during the Royal Commission. It was a, an entire subsection of the Royal Commission. Things were so bad, the cover-ups were so horrific that it's flipped the other way now and the rules and the regulations and the tightness and controls uh, because they know that there's such a credibility crisis that's there and it's, uh, it's widespread. I get an email, sadly, every day. I, I, every time I get it, I think about unsubscribing to this email. It's a Christian journalist in the United States and I would say daily there is a report of Christians behaving badly whether it's sexual abuse in churches, historic or present, whether it's um, adulterous relationships by megachurch pastors, whether it's opulent living, putting away millions and millions while others are suffering, whether it's defrauding the government out of tax or other income, uh, sex scandals, embezzlements, you name it. And literally, I get that email every day, mainly the United States, but sometimes the, the United States... A journalist even reports on things that happen in Australia. So, the church has a credibility crisis. Now, if you're with us for the first time today, you might be thinking, is this guy for the church or is he kind of against the church? Um, did somebody sneak in and, uh, and take the position of the pastor? I mean, this guy couldn't be the pastor. He's got bare feet. I mean, surely he'd be dressed with robes and, and shoes at least if he was the pastor. Now, I am, right? And I want to acknowledge up front, we do have a credibility crisis and we'd be foolish to ignore it and we would be highly unwise to ignore the way that this has touched not only um, society and public perception, but it's actually touched the lives of individuals and it hurts and great harm has been done. And so what do I want to say to you? If if you're kind of feeling that distance, whether as an inquirer looking into the church, Jesus, Christian things, or whether as a follower of Jesus, a Christian, somebody who's part of the church, what I want to say to you is through all of this mess, see whether you can find a way to look through that to Jesus. Now, I understand that next year there's going to be a media campaign that's uh, been funded to get people in our society just to think again about Christian things. Um, my understanding is it will be called um, Jesus All About Life. Uh, we saw a campaign that was like that back in, I think it was 2005 or 2006, uh, largely supported by Scripture Union but by other organisations as well. And there were people in the ads back then that said things like, I'm not much into religion, but I'm interested in what Jesus has to say. And that is a wonderful way forward. Because what I want us to be clear about is that we're not into religion either. That Jesus himself, we'll see, is not into religion. But the way forward is to listen and to remove some of the mess and just to enable ourselves to listen to Jesus. 
Um, of course, I, I don't mean go and sit in a quiet place and empty your mind and hope that he speaks to you, though you might do that. But I want to say, listen to him as recorded. And what we've got printed inside your handout there, it, it's part of a chapter from Matthew chapter 15, first 20 verses. Now, we've taken a little extract out, if you want to see it in context, and it's wise if you do, uh, and you don't have a Bible, please take a Bible from the table that's over there. We've got free Bibles. And if you don't have one, we'd love you to have that as our gift. Take it home today. Um, and what you'll see is you look through Matthew 15 and into 16, and, and we're, we've been looking at this, and next week we'll look at it further, is Jesus interacting with a whole range of people, Jesus teaching a whole bunch of things. And there's actually some really cool threads. Um, this is my nerdy side coming out now. In, uh, in chapter 15, verse 2, where it says, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. In the original, it's literally, they don't wash their hands before they eat bread. They eat bread. And what we'll see next week is that bread or crumbs or yeast or leaven appear in every paragraph for the rest of this chapter and the first part of the next. Matthew's put together a bunch of themes that are connected to show us how Jesus engaged with people. But that's the nerdy bit. Let's not worry too much about that. First of all, I want you to see Jesus' attitude to religious rituals. And I'm going to pick it up in verses 1 and 2. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Um, this would be a little bit like saying, then some cardinals and theological lecturers came from Rome. These are the religious heavyweights of the day. And they're coming all the way from Jerusalem uh, because they're concerned about what Jesus is doing. Basically, they're threatened. And we see this theme again and again. What do they say to Jesus? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus, as he often does, doesn't answer straight away. He says a question in response. And let's look at that, verse 3. He replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? You see what's going on? They're criticising Jesus and his disciples for breaking the traditions. Jesus trumps that by saying, why do you break the commands of God for the sake of obeying your own human traditions? You see, there's, there's a question of authority here. Jesus is criticising religious ritual that is simply a rule that's been established by people. And if you look through the history of Christianity and look at various churches and denominations, you'll find that as human beings, we have a great propensity to add a whole bunch of rules and regulations to what Jesus taught. It, it's not enough for us to have the word of God in the Bible. We think we can make it better. And so we add in all of these things that you can't do and all of these things that you must do. And, you know, honestly, half of them, you won't find them in the Bible. In fact, some churches will divide over these matters. Clearly, if you're going to be baptised, you've got to be baptised from the head to the toe. It has to be a whole body getting wet. 
Now, that's a problem if there's not enough water to get your whole body wet. Um, and some would say, no, that does, that's not necessary. What, what you've got to do is take a little bit of it and sprinkle and make a sign of a cross. Now, does the Bible tell you how much water needs to be used and in what circumstances and whether you have to use water or don't have to use water? I think there have been a whole heap of areas where we add our traditions and we stand on them and we forget that the scripture is about a deeper truth. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, down in verse 8 and 9, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. There would be no doubt in my mind that people involved in a whole heap of religious traditions believe that they are worshipping God. And yet what Jesus says, if they're just following human rules, then it's vain worship. It's meaningless, futile, purposeless worship. God is interested in something other than religious performance. He goes on to criticise their hypocrisy. Look at verses 3 and following. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, then they are not to honour their father or mother with it. Now, let me try and picture what's going on here. Right? Imagine you've got paid and you, uh, you get $200 from uh, your pay and you put it into a jar that's marked devoted to God. And then you're talking with your parents, or if you don't have parents alive, somebody who's in need, anybody really, and they say, I could really be helped if I could just find $200. And you go, well, I would. I really would. But I've devoted that to God. You see, they've made a human rule in order to not do what is right, not follow what God would have us do in caring for our parents or caring for those who are in need. And Jesus points the finger right back at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and says, that's what you guys do. It's just an example, this one. They do it in all kinds of ways, let me tell you. But they make human traditions that safeguard and protect their interests so that they can ignore the keeping of God's word and doing what God genuinely wants. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus calls that out as hypocrisy. He knows the heart. He knows what's going on. And he knows when we avoid honouring God by making these clever safeguards or rules for ourselves so that we don't have to do what we should do. Lastly, Jesus makes it clear that God is not concerned with the outside only. He's actually concerned with the heart. And the outside is not what makes a person clean or unclean but it's the inside. Now, this comes against a background of an understanding amongst Jewish people of holiness 
being that which is like God and can come into contact with God, and uncleanness, things that are unholy and are not to come into contact with God. And if things were able to be accepted by God and they were unclean, they first of all had to be made clean so that they could then be okay to come into contact with a holy God. Now, one example of this was the ritual washing of hands that the priests did as they went into the tabernacle or into the temple um, because they were going to go in and deal with sacrifices on behalf of the people. So they had to ritually wash their hands, symbolising the cleansing that they needed in order to be able to act on behalf of the people who needed cleansing. Now, that you can find if you go back to the book of Leviticus, for example. But what the Pharisees, the elders, and uh, the, the teachers of the law had done is they'd turned an occasional ritual washing by the priests for the sake of the sacrifices into a, you must wash your hands every time you touch food. That is God's word. They turned it into a rule that you had to keep all the time. Now, this wasn't a health measure, okay? This, this wasn't a COVID measure. Sing happy birthday twice while you wash your hands between all the fingers and make sure you do it properly. No, this was just the laying of burdens of rules and regulations upon the people. And Jesus says, it, it's not only hypocrisy to do that, it's actually a category error. It's a category error because the washing of hands never made somebody clean or unclean. Um, you, you can wash your hands as much as you want. You can have a shower for hours and hours and hours. It doesn't matter how spick and span you make the body. It doesn't do anything to make the heart on the inside clean. There are still evil thoughts. There's still envy. There's still pride. There's still bitterness. There's still greed. There's a whole bunch of things that no amount of washing or cleansing on the outside can ever get rid of. And Jesus calls this out. Let's hear his words. Verse 10. He called the crowd to him and he said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, this is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, then both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still so dull? He asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth, they come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands doesn't defile them. See, it's not about the external. It's not about the washing of hands, nor is it about the things that you actually put into your body. It's not that if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, then you'll be more pure, that, that you'll be more acceptable to God. 
It's not if you refrain from, from eating and drinking certain foods that God will find you more acceptable. It's not by washing and ceremonies and rituals that God will find you more acceptable. It's a matter of the heart and what comes out of the person. In fact, Jesus makes a joke in the middle of this. He says, basically, don't you know that what goes into a person goes into the stomach and then comes out again? In other words, it's just crap. It doesn't do anything to make you more or less right with God. It's not a spiritual matter. Now, I think there's been an, an error that Christians have made in this regard. And, and, and that is they've taken a, a scripture that talks about the body, the human body, being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and they've said, well, because the Holy Spirit lives there, then you should only eat the right foods. Nothing processed, um, high fibre, uh, Vegan would be preferable. If it has to be meat, then maybe chicken or fish would be okay. Um, you, you certainly can't have Coca-Cola and you wouldn't want to defile the body with alcohol. And smoking, well, you've got to be kidding. You, you can't possibly fill the Holy Spirit's temple with smoke. Well, hang on a minute. You go back to the first temple and it was often filled with smoke. So you've got to be careful how you work your biblical arguments at this point. Now... It's good to eat a balanced diet. Um, it's, it's good not to drink alcohol to excess. It's good not to smoke. And I speak as somebody fighting lung cancer every day. It's good to have exercise. It's good to have sleep. It's good to recognise that we're creatures that have been made in God's image and to look after ourselves. But don't think that if you get super fit then you'll get your way into heaven. Don't think if you eat just the right foods or abstain from the, the, the wrong drinks or any particular external that God must then go, well, he's okay, she's real good. It's not the way it works. It's a category error. And as Christians and as churches, we have confused people in this regard. I applied a number of years ago to be the pastor of a church in a denominational system in another part of Australia. And the most important question that that denominational leader wanted to ask me was whether I thought it was okay for people to use separate cups in communion or whether I would follow his teaching that it only could be one cup. That was a big issue. I didn't realise it at the time, and so, of course, I said, I'd, look, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. It did matter to him. It, it mattered critically to him. It was more important, I think, than, I, than anything else I could have come up with that I would see as important if I was employing somebody to be a pastor. And typically, around the place, we see examples of that here and here and here, People who will argue and fight over whether you should sing hymns or whether you should sing choruses, whether you're allowed to have a pipe organ, whether you can have a drum kit, whether you can shake tambourines, whether you can clap, whether you can lift your hands up or whether you should keep them in your pocket. All sorts of things that Christians will make rules about. They're category errors. God's concerned with the heart. So friends, when you look at Jesus here, you actually see 
that Jesus is on about something which is real. It's deep. It's integral. It's honest. Um, it's transparent. It's fair dinkum. And I think that people are longing for something like that. Don't you? I mean, we live in a world which is so incredibly fake. I mean, Tim's comment about a, a weatherboard jungle, yes, the, the, there's all kinds of things that are so dehumanising in our world. But you look at social media, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, and you, you see people who are imaging themselves in ways that will make them popular with others. And it's such a bankrupt way to live. And you'll never image yourself perfectly enough. And if you do, then maybe one day you'll wake up and you'll realise that you're but a shadow of reality. We know that we're not an image. We are a person. God knows that we're people. God cares for us as people. God cares not simply for what we do, but for who we are. He's not simply looking at putting on a show, but he's looking at, at where our words and our thoughts and our actions come from, the, the inside out. That's what matters. And, you know, we don't have to image ourselves for God. God knows that we're not perfect. He knows that we're pretty crummy, actually, that we're a disappointment to others, but deep down we're, we're the biggest disappointment to ourselves. He knows that we can't live up to his standards. Hell, we can't even live up to our own. And yet God steps into our world in his son, Jesus Christ. And he shows us what reality is really all about. He shows us what it is to be the true image of God. He shows us authenticity. He cuts through the religious nonsense of the day. He cuts through the external performance that people put on. And he points at us to what really matters. And what really matters, friends, is we need a heart transplant. We need a new heart. Not a physical one. We need a spiritual heart. We need to be transformed from the inside out. We need the forgiveness that comes from Jesus so that Jesus liberates us to be our genuine selves as forgiven children of God our Father, as disciples of Jesus Christ. That's who we're designed to be. And I want to encourage you today, if you are considering Christianity, to cut through the mess that's there, and, and the mess is real. And look at Jesus. Read through Matthew. Come and talk to me or somebody else if you've got questions. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if, if you know what I've been saying to be true, let me encourage you to, to live that out. Let me encourage you to be open to the criticisms and the challenges and the, the, the disappointment and, and the, even the hatred and hostility that people around you will have to church. And think about how you can, in the midst of that, encourage them to look into Jesus. 
encourage them to open a Bible. Maybe even say, well, I respect that's your experience of church, but you know, mine's been a bit different to that. There's been some exciting things that I've discovered when I've met together with other Christians and looked at what the Bible says about Jesus. Maybe they gave up on church when they were very, very young. They were forced to go to scripture. They were forced perhaps to Sunday school. But they've not really entered into thinking about these things as an adult. Well, there's not too many other major decisions in life that we would go back to our 10-year-old self to make the choice for us. Yeah, we're not asking our, our eight-year-old kids to work out which house we buy or which mortgage we take um, or which car to buy or which holiday to take. No, we know there are some decisions that are worth considering as adults. And maybe you've never given or maybe your friends have never given God the, the time of day as an adult. Maybe they've never opened a Bible as an adult. Maybe they've never really visited the questions of their own purpose and meaning in life as an adult. COVID it shook us up a little bit in that regard, but hey, people get back to routine pretty quickly. Getting a serious health diagnosis can shake people up. But then if you overcome that, then you again assume that you're going to live forever. But it's not the case. Let's ask God to open opportunities to point to how good Jesus is. Maybe there are people that you could pray for, people that you could ask God to help you to be able to speak with about the true Jesus.